Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. One of the most pressing concerns for anyone anywhere is shelter. And in London, the challenges germane to putting a roof over one's head can seem pretty daunting. Home ownership is a dream slipping away from an increasing number of younger people. Threats of mansion taxes and ever greater gaps between the rungs of the property ladder bedevil those who've already managed to invest in bricks and mortar. Increasing investment in top-end properties only adds to skyrocketing housing prices, while at the bottom end of the market, substandard living conditions, opportunistic landlords and profiteering agencies are an all-too-common experience. So what are the options? Are we missing a trick? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel or is a radical overhaul of some aspect of the housing setup required? In this two-episode Londonist Out Loud housing special, we've brought to bear the expertise of individuals who spend their lives working in and around housing. In this week's show, I'll be speaking to three professionals, each with a different axe to grind. I'll let them introduce themselves. Next week, three Londonist writers who've been specialising in the London housing crisis will pick those interviews apart, filtering the views through their own findings and attempting to draw some conclusions as to where we go next. Our sponsors, as ever, are Audible. To claim your free audiobook from over 60,000 titles, go to www.audible.com forward slash Londonist. You might set out hoping to acquire House of Cards by Michael Dobbs, but find yourself shacked up in Room by Emma Donoghue. You can find pictures and extras on acast.com tweet your housing experience to at Londonist Sound or drop us a comment on the show page here at Londonist.com and so to our show and my first guest. First guest, who are you? I'm Danny Dorling, I'm a professor of geography at the University of Oxford and for over 20 years I've been looking at things such as housing supply and demand, how much it costs to get yourself a flat or a house and inequalities in Britain, are they getting bigger, are they getting smaller? It's a reductive opening, but is there a housing crisis in London? Um, y- yes. It's, I mean, I suppose the way to answer that is to try to think, when was it this bad before? And I think you've got to go back to the early 1920s to find a time when Londoners were finding it as hard 
to squeeze themselves into houses to be able to afford the rent. Most of them were renting back then. Uh, but since the early 1920s, housing has become better in London, more equally shared out, easier to get. So you've got to go back way then to find a comparable housing crisis. The focus of your work is very much around inequality. Does that mean that you're looking at the supply of housing stock or is it more to do with the number of rooms that people have access to or what, what are the parameters of your interests? Okay, well, the thing, one thing I look at is how unevenly we distribute housing. So do we have lots of housing in London which is empty or which only contains one person and lots of housing in London now which is very, very overcrowded, getting back to overcrowding rates we haven't seen for, for many decades Uh, We do need more stock in London because we're lucky people are coming, but we haven't used our existing stock as inefficiently uh, as we're doing at the moment. Well, at least since 100 years ago. A 100 years ago, we had great big houses that were left empty most of the year when the aristocracy just came in during the, the season to come to their Mayfair house. But you've got to go back that far to find similar degrees of inefficiency in how we're using a lot of the stock, particularly in Kensington and Chelsea, uh, where so much is now uh, left empty for so long. With that sort of thought in mind, are you coming originally from a more socialist point of view? No, not. I mean, this isn't socialist. It's really, it's about market inefficiency. There's no need for the market to be as inefficient as this. Markets can be uh, incredibly efficient, um, even in housing. It's just that when you get a situation where you have a few very, very rich people and lots of people about very much, then then markets tend to break down. Uh, And I'm also not particularly in favour of building very large new council estates in London, which many people on the left are. My approach is just to look at this from the point of view of numbers. I mean, you look at it from the point of view of numbers, you step back and go, this is slightly mad. You're getting increasing numbers of empty property in the middle of London. You're getting people building tower blocks which are just buy to leave. They're not even trying to let them to anybody. Uh, You're seeing uh, children having to share bedrooms with adults of the opposite sex, which we tried to get rid of in the 80s and the 90s. Just the numbers look awful. And it's a a case of market failure above all else. So reform of how houses are sold, some increased regulation there. Yeah, very light regulations is what I'd like to see. So, well, George Osborne's already bought in capital gains tax for non-doms who purchase property from, I think it's this month or next month of 2015. Uh, capital gains tax on non-doms encourages them not just to buy, to speculate. So uh, I'd, I'd go for a slight increase of that. I'd look at mild rent regulation for tenants. So to change things so that we don't have the worst situation in Europe. So you can't just be kicked out within two months of your landlord giving you notice. Uh, but very, I do tweaks, a whole series of pretty minor changes until the situation gets better, which it, which is that London stops becoming more expensive. London's already the most expensive large city on the planet to house yourself in. That's too expensive. When you're the most expensive, you're, it's too expensive. London needs to become cheaper for all kinds of reasons for people to house themselves in. But I would very carefully alter a number of things and I would use that measure of housing cost to tell, tell me when I've got it right or not. Yours seems a lot calmer a voice than others I've heard on the subject. I, I mean, it's maybe too obvious a question, but if the tweaks that you're talking about are so straightforward and so within reach, what's the incentivization not to adopt those ideas? I mean, I'm calmer because I don't live in London. I live in Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I lived in London, I think I'd be livid. Uh, my colleagues in universities live in London, London live in. Oxford's pretty bad, I have to tell you, but I'm a well-off professor. 
which means I can just about house myself. Um, so I can see where the anger's uh, coming from. Uh, well, I'd characterise it more as desperation. It is. I mean, if you sort of step back, and this sounds very cruel, this is a really interesting natural experiment in what the hell happened when you make people's lives dif- this difficult what do they do when you know are they willing to live without a sitting room are they willing to bunk up with strangers they don't know uh, and it sounds pretty awful but what's going on at the moment in, in london is a natural experiment on what happens when you make things really really uncomfortable including for a set of pretty well-off young people who've done everything else right in, li- in life they've passed all their degrees they've got the right job they've got a pretty high salary uh, and we're kind of almost experimenting on them as, you know, what happens if we make their life uncomfortable, having let them or helped them do everything else right in life. Uh, but it just needs, we, you know, we don't need to run this natural experiment anymore. We know it's pretty awful um, and, and we need to begin to bring it to an end. Is it helpful? I'm not necessarily thinking of blame here, but is it helpful to understand how we got to this point? And was there any sort of organising principle that got us here? Was this deliberate in any way? Uh, that there is a problem in that over the last 40 years a group of people have come to see housing prices and the prices of flats rising as being good particularly the people who happen to own them you can see how you could get into this kind of of mess and individually you might think oh I've got hold of this house it's now worth half a million or a million pounds I've done really well Uh, there's a lack of understanding that that creates problems for everybody else Um, so you know if you want to see why we've got into this state and why we're still in it, we do have a government whose prime motive when it comes to housing is to keep the house prices high and increase them. Uh, the main reason for that is that it's the most likely way in which they are to form a government again. If house prices fall, the Conservatives lose votes. Uh, so I can see why they're doing it, but they're stuck into a vicious circle, at least until the election day, of having to, to help spend a lot of government money keeping housing costs high, to try to get themselves re-elected. After the election day, even the Conservatives have no actual reason to try to carry on doing this anymore. I get an impression that everybody feels themselves to be helpless. Uh, you listen to homeowners, the value of whose property has rocketed. Uh, mm. But as soon as you t- start talking about various forms of taxation, they say things like, well, all, all the money is in the house. You know, I don't have more <laughs> money in my pocket. I've still just got oh, bricks yeah, and mortar around me. I can't possibly pay the tax, don't they? I, I, I got a lovely letter recently from somebody who, not on a good high income, bought a flat 30 years ago, uh, owes the flat outright, and the flat's worth a million. And this person told me they couldn't possibly pay the mansion tax or higher council tax. Now, all they'd have to do is take out a mortgage on, say, £20,000. That would pay them the tax. And then when they sold their flat, they would still make £980,000. They would still be far, far, far richer than I'll ever be. Um, the, the idea that people who've got a lot of wealth somehow cannot pay taxes. I don't think these people are stupid. Um, so they're just not being honest when they say that you, there, there are ways in which you can pay tax. And the other advantage of wealth taxes is that they help stop property escalation if you don't have wealth taxes then london property becomes one of the safest places on the planet to put your money no matter where you've made it around the planet and london will carry on getting more and more expensive so we have to tax the wealth in london houses just to help future londoners be able to house themselves with the political disincentives that you've just talked about what do you think realistically is the likelihood of changes like that being brought about I think, well, none of the political parties can talk about uh, the need for house prices to come down because they'll lose more votes than they'll gain. 
because older people are more likely to vote than younger people. But just because they can't talk about it doesn't mean that after the election, all of the main parties will see this as a priority. There's no reason for them to try to make London more and more expensive unless they really are trying to, you know, they're not trying to bankrupt London firms. They're not trying to make London not work. It's just for short-term political reasons between now and the election, the parties have to talk about house prices being high as a good thing, even though they all know it isn't a good thing. That sounds a lot like, for very good reasons, perhaps we've all got to grin and bear it for however long it takes political parties to do whatever manoeuvring they may or may not do. For somebody who's shacked up with a number of people that they don't know in cramped conditions, that's not going to be of much comfort, is it? No. I mean, there are organisations... Uh, very, very active organisations. There's the Intergenerational Foundation, there's Generation Rent. You're getting campaign organisations now now in London about people in, in this situation. And, you know, if you really don't like it, there are groups you can join to, to help change it. It has reached an excess that we have not seen for decades and decades, which suggests that it really ought to calm down. Unless we head towards London where... There are even fewer landlords controlling even more property. And there are fewer opportunities for, for people who want to settle down and have their own house to do that. And you, you can see a kind of dystopian Blade Runner London if you, if you want to. I mean, it is possible for London to head that way. It's just going to be a very, very antisocial city if it becomes like that. My favourite complaint of all was Norman Tebbit, who is he's a member of the House of Lords now. And he was being driven out of the House of Lords, back to where he was sleeping one night, past all the windows of all the houses with the lights off, because they were all empty, but they were all maximising the value for their owners of property. Now, if Lord, Lord Tebbit is having a problem housing yourself in London, we really have got a problem in London. Hmm. And it sounds very much as though part of what you're behind is an increased politicisation of the people it's affected, perhaps particularly younger people. I think they have to begin to get involved. You we, we've taught a generation since the 1980s to be individualistic. Work hard, study hard, look after yourself and all will be okay. You know, there's no such thing as society. You, you, you just look after yourself and your family and you'll be okay. What this housing crisis has done is shown that generation of people that you can't just look after yourself and be okay. Uh, it's similar to telling people, you know, get a big fast car and drive around and you'll be okay. And then you find everybody else has got a big fast car and the roads have stopped. Um, <laughs> So it's a politicisation that, you know, it, it comes eventually. If you tell people to be individualistic and selfish, at some point things will break down. You have to have a degree of planning and coordination. The key thing about housing is that it takes up space. The way in which you house yourself or you buy a property in the middle of London and leave it empty, that has effects on other people. And, and that's why this is a problem of politics. And that seems to be quite a bottleneck, potentially. It, it is tricky to the bottleneck of actually getting action or getting people realising that they have some power. I mean, people did this in the past. Uh, it's, it's people and power who got rents under control in the 1920s and 30s. It's people who created building societies so that they could borrow money to build their own houses. It, it's people who demanded um, homes for heroes after both wars. And it's, it's people who got the Conservative Party in the 1950s to build more council houses than the Labour Party. You know, everything is people who complained about Cathy Come Home and seeing a woman with a pram with homeless people. Everything that's been achieved in housing over the last century has happened because of agitation from people. 
And as we've stopped agitating as groups, as we've become more individualistic since the 1980s, we've ended up with, with building fewer houses and becoming more cramped because just looking after you and your family doesn't actually help you and your family the most as looking after everybody. I think I remember in All That Is Solid, there was something, the gist of it seemed to be that we don't need to build more homes to relieve the crisis. And it does sound as though perhaps that's part of your suggestion here. Um, And maybe I could tie this in with uh, the price of land as well. Are you saying that we should be thinking about ingenious ways of achieving the building of our homes? And how within reach is that? Well, I mean, one of the biggest problems we've got in Britain is a very large number of homes that are only containing one person who's lonely and on their own. Uh, elderly people are in a kind of a, a, a bottleneck. Uh, life expectancy has increased, so people used to die in their 70s, they're now living through to their 90s, but we don't have housing for the elderly to move downsize into. So a lot of family housing is, is full of a single elderly person Often they're having problems eating it. Often they they don't see anybody all day. Uh, so even if this person is up for selling their house in order perhaps to finance their later life care, the ability to do that just ain't there. Well, the, the house to go to because they want mm. to go nearby. So we need we need to change property so there is property on the flat that you don't need stairs from nearby. But also, while house prices are rising, a lot of elderly people are not selling because they're thinking about their grandchildren. So they they stay in the big house because it goes up in value and they can give a big inheritance. As soon as you get a situation of house prices beginning to fall slowly and steadily, then the quicker you move out of the house that's too big for you, the better. And the, and the free market begins to work again. Um, you know, the problem is we've got a mad market situation in which using something you don't need makes sense to leave money for your grandchildren. Um, there is one situation in which we do need to, well, there's two in which we need to build. Housing doesn't last forever. So you have to replace it. It lasts about 150, 200 years if you build it well. But the other reason why we do need to build in London and parts of the South East uh, is immigration. And no politician will ever link immigration to the need for more housing. Uh, but it is the, the most simple demographic aspect of housing. Well, I think, I think UKIP are very ready to make that link, aren't they? They're ready to make it, but look, UKIP are not saying, look, we need some building because we're so lucky we're getting immigrants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> UKIP can say, look... Um, we're getting some of the youngest, fittest, most skilled people from Europe who are coming here you know, because London's exciting. Aren't we lucky? Let's build a few more flaps over, over tube stations so that we can benefit from this. You know, I mean, if UK wanted to be very clever, they'd start talking like that, but they would, I'm afraid, lose their party members. Are the public ready for the sort of changes that you're suggesting here? Because subtle though they are and minor though they are in the scheme of things, I certainly read lots of headlines that just stoke up this panic about house prices and it seems to be a crisis of confidence right across the housing sector or that's what we would be led to believe and so perhaps asking people to loosen their grip ever so slightly on you can't loosen your grip on a foothold but you get, you get what I mean that's that's asking a lot really isn't it no, it's asking a lot because what you're getting for people who are buying in London they're highly successful people in their 40s who are managing to borrow an enormous mortgage and they're buying a house and the worst thing that they think can happen to them is that that house go, falls in value by a few percent because they'll have negative equity and then interest rates rising would, would finish them off. And this is why it's, it's hard to do things. What people don't do is think about the next generation. They don't think about their children. So, so in my case, it is actually in my interest for the house that I have got a mortgage on in Oxford to begin to fall in value 
if my children in 20 years time are going to house themselves and people do not think forward that far they don't think how would the next generation manage to do this and is it really in my interest for me to become richer whereas i would actually you know if i just cared about my kids and i've got three of them uh they'd be better off if house prices fell in value and they're able to get cheaper rents and buy a house themselves than if their father became richer and could share out that profit amongst the three of them because it wouldn't be enough money for them to actually be able to get a start on the housing ladder once you divided it by three. So not socialism, but less selfishness, less short-termism. Yes, and also working out what's new. I mean, the thing about socialism is it, is it was a thing of its century. Uh, before we had levellers and had diggers, we all, always have progressive politics. In progressive politics at the moment, we don't have many very good new ideas. We have the Greens, who are very interesting, and a lot of what I say appeals to the Greens because I'm not about doing a mass housing boom across the whole of the southeast. But we don't have the kind of innovation that, say, council estates once were. When they replaced slums, they were innovative. We don't have the innovation that we had when we created housing associations for the first time. So we need a new politics. Um, socialism is an old politics. It's like other radical politics of the past. You always have to reinvent uh, your radical politics to come up with something new. And at the moment, on the progressive side of politics in Britain, there's a kind of vacuum there. And that's part of the reason why the free market you know, neoliberalism has managed to go to such an extreme and get us to such a bad state is because of the lack of all progressive alternatives that are not simply harking back to the past. What about rent caps? Would they make the situation better or worse? Would they hit maintenance and new building? Or, or is that special pleading from the landlord class? I, I, I don't think you can believe landlord class, class very much because they've built so little while they've been able to charge such high rents. But I wouldn't necessarily rent cap. Uh, what I would do is extend tenure to six months, to three years, to five years, particularly for people with kids, they need at least five years. And while you've got the right to stay in your house that you're renting for that length of time, I would limit rent increases to inflation. Um, you know, but that's but gently, softly, you've got to do, you've got to do this carefully because London, the only place on the planet which has seen a house price increase as big as London's at the moment is Tokyo before the 1990 crash. So whatever you do, you need to do it carefully uh, because we're we're teetering in a very very unstable situation. And if you were to simply say we're going to have rent caps in London tomorrow, you'll have a housing market crash in London within a week. Um, so, so this is. You know, which in the long term might not be a bad thing, but in the short term will be absolutely awful for a couple of million people. So, that, so this is a very tricky thing uh, to deal with. You have to work out why, where you're trying to get to, and you're trying to get to in a generation's time. London is affordable and fun to be in, and you're not spending most of your money going to rent to a landlord who cannot be bothered to do the property up because it's so easy for them to make money on really, really shoddy property. I'm Alex Hilton, I'm the director of Generation Rent and we're a campaign for tenants' rights. And you're London-based, what's the scope of your focus? We're, we, we campaign across the whole of the UK. First up, the big question, is there a housing crisis in London? Well, there's a housing crisis all over the UK and it's in particular anywhere where there's a thriving jobs market and it happens that London is a globally um, competitive jobs market um, because of its historic place in, in the world. 
can we pathologise the problem first of all? Right. What we have in the UK is not that much supply and lots of demand. Uh, we have something like a shortage of a million homes in this country today and the, the demand is rising by about 250,000 homes a year. And when you say homes, you're measuring that as families or individuals? or uh, Just households, whether it be families or individuals. But one of the big challenges is, is that not that we need more homes but there's a hell of a lot of people who own their own homes with lots of spare rooms and aren't downsizing Uh, the reality is that uh, people aren't going to downsize and so we have to look at where else we can find homes and that means building them we've arrived at this state of affairs by what means in your view Uh, three major things happened um, the first is that uh, under Thatcher, we, as a country, we simply stopped building council houses. Uh, for decades, we had been building as many house- council houses as we could, and we stopped all of a sudden. The second element is that we lost job security. So it meant that rather than needing to live near a job, you needed to live near a job plus some alternative jobs in case you lost that first job. So we crystallised demand on the jobs economies in the country in a way that had never been the case before. And thirdly, that itself led to um, rising house prices, which has turned the housing market into an investment market. Where So it's, it's not possible to, to acquire a home without an investment anymore. Whereas when we didn't have crazy capital gain, you were just buying a home that you wanted to live in. Now you're buying an investment. And that means you've overlaid um, the domestic housing market with the global investment market, and which is increasing demand for housing in a way that has never been before. Ah, OK, so... You- You're the first person I've spoken to who's identified that shift in the way we live, or the the shifts in the way we live, not just in how we perceive our houses, but also how we live our lives, job security being one of those things. I spoke to Danny Dawling, who advocated subtle changes, I think, in the way we understand uh, our relationship with our homes and perhaps our relationship with society more broadly. Are you of the view that gentle shifts are going to get us out of this problem or do you see the need for something more radical? Um, I generally agree with Danny on most things. He's right in the sense that we do need a, a fundamental shift in people's attitudes towards housing. It's an essential utility, but it gets treated like an investment. And as an investment, it gets treated as though it's OK for some people not to have uh, decent and affordable, decent quality housing. And it's not OK. It's not OK uh, anymore that it's OK for people to not have access to affordable, decent quality water. It's not OK. Um, where I'd probably differ with Danny is that I do think that it's now got to a crisis point for many people. We are, as renters, 10 million people being milked, milked like cattle in, a, in battery farms for everything that can be squeezed out of us. And that, that is not acceptable. I suspect that by nature of where they are and that the sort of jobs they're likely to be doing that the people you come into contact with as renters are likely to be a specific demographic of society. Certainly there has been work done in terms of identifying the different sorts of renters but it's not so simple as to say oh it's just young people and I know we call ourselves generation rent but we kind of identify it as a generation of people who have something in common on the basis of their circumstances more than their age but you are talking about disproportionately younger people one of the barriers to um, buying a home isn't the mortgage renters are generally paying more than mortgage holders a thousand pounds a year more than mortgage holders in in rent it's not the mortgage that's unaffordable it's the deposit and with house prices so high deposits that uh, a generation ago were maybe 
the equivalent of six months' earnings are now the equivalent of two years' earnings. And that becomes unfeasible to save for people these days. The banks have got a lot of money that they're making out of mortgages um, with very little risk. Um, and I think that's, there's a, there is a fundamental problem with the banking system that allows that to happen. Uh, and that means um, if you are a um, landlord and you've uh, liquidated uh, some capital gain, you've remortgaged some capital gain out of a property you own and you've got a 25% deposit and a, a, and a tenant, a first-time buyer, has managed to scrabble together a 10% deposit the banks will generally generally make it easier for the person with 25% deposit or more um, to buy that property. They'll be higher up the list, they'll be the the, the safer bet. And the banks always go with the safer bet. But the big impact on the size of the deposit is less the percentage of the value of the property, um, it is the outright value of the property. So um, 5 or 10 or 15 or 20% of £100,000 is smaller than any kind of comparable percentage of a property that's £350,000, £400,000. And yet these are the scale of uh, house price increases that we've seen over the last 20 years. Do you and or your organisation disagree fundamentally with the idea of renting a place to live in? What we want to see is a decent, affordable, secure, private rented sector. We think the private rented sector is an unpleasant place to live today because it is broadly unregulated and landlords say oh but there's 300 regulations but it's 300 regulations that aren't don't add up to a decent private rented sector so um in germany for example they've got permanent security tenure you can live in a place as long as you like a, a landlord has to really prove their case that they need a property back um, in order to get it back um, they have uh, rent control, so even between tenancies, landlords don't have unlimited uh, ability to put the rents up. And that means that you don't get the capital gain in Germany because of the way the market works. So there isn't a lot of pressure for landlords to get any more money than the rent that is allowed. But the other thing you've got is decent conditions. You've got strictly enforced um, conditions in terms of maintenance and if your landlord doesn't fulfill their obligations you can withhold your rent to a reasonable degree until they have fixed the maintenance problem and so what you've got is a suppressing effect on property prices which means that the cost of becoming a landlord is much cheaper in germany as well because property is cheaper and so it doesn't end up with landlords making less money in germany it just means they've got a more sustainable private rented sector and that's what we'd like to see here a a, a private rented sector where people can have decent conditions security affordability and landlords can get a fair return and on that basis presumably it could be regarded renting could be regarded as a long-term option rather than as a temporary measure before buying one's own property absolutely at the moment you've got um, a massive rapid growth in the number of renters simply fueled by um, the inaccessibility of social housing because there isn't any and the inaccessibility of of buying a home because it costs too much Um, and so you've got this captured consumer Uh, that is basically getting ripped off because they're captured. There is no choice. No one's choosing to be in the private rented sector. When you said ripped off, I immediately thought of agencies. I've been through a number of agencies when I've been renting properties in London. I've never, I think, received my deposit back. There's always been some pretext for holding on to it or indeed wanting to charge more. What about agencies? Agents have a parasitical relationship. Um, They neither provide supply nor demand. Um, And yet, as the imbalance between supply and demand grows, agents get to charge bigger fees because tenants are more desperate.
Um, uh, the fees that agents charge, uh, they invent new ones for, uh, whenever they can. It will not become a fair system until agency fees to tenants are banned. And all that would do is pass on those costs to landlords, but landlords have market power with agents in a way that tenants don't. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so landlords will choose the agents with the lower fees, and so it will bring down the overall cost to tenants, even that part of the cost that is passed on to tenants um, through the rent. You described one setup in Germany, and I know, for example, in France there are a good brace of rights that tenants can enjoy. It's more complicated in New York, but there are, as far as I understand it, rent controls and various bits and pieces in place, although it's more complex. How do you see us getting from the state of affairs that we're in at the moment with the inflated house prices being what they are to a system that's more fair? Um, What drives up house prices is the profitability of housing um, as an investment. Now, that's the perversity. The profitability of housing is an investment, the capital gain that you get. And uh, and as a country, um, we are giving private sector landlords... £27 billion a year of taxpayer support. £9 billion of that is through housing benefit that goes into the private rented sector for extraordinarily poor quality housing. And the rest of it is um, uh, through various tax breaks and loopholes. Um, the, the tax breaks and loopholes are very hard to, to tie up because they come from the ability of a landlord to vaguely define themselves as either a company or an individual, depending on what's most beneficial. So in terms of getting mortgage interest relief, they define 
define themselves as a company because individuals don't get it. And in terms of capital gains, um, uh, capital gains tax, they in- define themselves as individuals, um, and they do the capital gains tax flipping that um, that MPs know so much about. Um, so, so there are all sorts of things that landlords can do to maximise their um, tax efficiency that an individual can't do, or a company can't do on their own. So uh, what we think is rather than mess around with a whole tax code uh, and complicate it for companies and individuals and landlords, we think there should just be a new tax. And if you imagine we had a living rent threshold and any landlord that charged above the living rent threshold got a 22% um, uh, tax on their on their residential rental income, that tax would raise £9 billion a year. That would recoup the housing benefit that, that we we as taxpayers pay to landlords. And if you hypothecated that tax, like a rant, Robin Hood tax for renters, for building social housing, um, you would build 100,000 or more new homes a year paid for by private sector landlords. And having those new homes would bring down the market rents because you'd be removing 100,000 households from the private rented sector and uh, enabling them to go into the social rented sector. So bringing down demand would bring down rents. And that's the, uh, the approach that we would take to a very flexible form of rent control control that would abolish itself over time if you set your percentage your 22 percent at the amount of money that would recoup the previous year's housing benefit yeah that's the simple answer anyway it gets more complicated that presupposes that, that there would be the political will to use that revenue for the purpose stated we see with for example car taxes and road taxes it doesn't always it just goes into the general pot and I've certainly heard persuasive arguments that it's in the interests of the party of government or the parties of government to keep homeowners happy and uh, in amongst them the landlords would there do you think actually be the incentive for politicians to see that through well one of the advantages of this proposal while it would bring down house prices over time it would do so quite slowly and organically you'd create new disadvantages if you didn't taper it off so that once you had enough homes that the tax disappeared and that's what we're proposing you know the housing benefit in the private rented sector goes down each year if you a create social housing so that fewer people are in paying housing or claiming housing benefit in the private rent sector and secondly by creating homes you bring down the rents so the amount of housing benefit being claimed by an individual tenant in the PRS is also going down. If you didn't match those numbers then you're just creating a tax and over time once you've got enough housing you shouldn't be excessively taxing the housing that's there it would become a perverse incentive for being a landlord and you you wouldn't want that over time but in the first instance you would want it to be a a tax that is hypothecated for building social housing that tapers off as you don't need any more social housing as as you've created enough that's what we'd like to see and laws can be made however politicians want them to be made and we we feel it would be a better law if it were made this way overlapping the group that uh, i I realize that is not only young people but there's a substantial number of younger people who find themselves renting also as we come towards an election there's much talk of the fact that younger people are less likely to vote is there a problem here with a lack of political engagement oh absolutely i noticed that this week the labor party published their top five pledges for the election they had one on immigration they didn't have one on housing and yet there's 10 million people in the private rented sector desperate for pledges from political parties on housing so 
I think what you've got is a situation where the mainstream parties are simply chasing the votes of homeowning swing voters in marginal seats that are in suburbs where people don't want housing built on the green belt near them. And that's a real threat, particularly for the Labour Party, certainly for the Lib Dems, but particularly for the Labour Party, in that over time, if people see that the mainstream parties are not relevant to them, they'll go to other parties. And uh, certainly in places like London uh, and other urban areas where um, tenants are not being served by the political class, you could find an alternative party, maybe the Greens, maybe someone else, emerging in the way that the SNP has come to dominate Scotland. Speaking of the Liberal Democrats, in the last week or so they produced an idea that was essentially higher purchase on homes. They're talking about, I think it was 100,000 homes, would be built and the renters would be able to put their rent money into what is effectively a, a mortgage setup. What do you think of this? Well, um, what, what was very unclear is where they're going to get the money from. I've looked at that scheme uh, myself and it's a very interesting scheme. It's very, very difficult to see how it is workable at scale because while you might buy you know one thousandth of a home every month you're not transferring title on that one thousandth of a home every month so um you understand about mortgages in that the bank owns the title until you've paid off the mortgage um is that the same way that's happening with this in which case where's your justification for not taking deposit and where's where's that risk being being offset but what you're also looking at for 100,000 homes, um, that's a hell of a lot of money. It's like £30 billion or something. Where, where is that money coming from? And if you had £30 billion to spend on housing, it would probably be better off spent in social housing because that would bring down the cost of all other housing. Three sort of bullet point questions here, and they are longer tenancies, rent caps and rent controls and with rent controls I know one or two economists even some of the left wing ones like Paul Krugman suggest that rent control is a bad idea. Is it a short term solution while we get out of the mess we're in? I certainly think it is a respite solution for tenants who are currently being ripped off it's a bad idea potentially but it's not as bad as not having them um, so in a, a lot of the evidence against rent controls is looks at New York, but New York's got two different forms of rent control and uh, a free market sitting along, all, all alongside each other in the same place with a lot of demand. And so, of course, you're finding in the connections between those different markets, corruption going on. What I'd say is if you've got a ubiquitous system like Germany, you don't have space for corruption. And that's what I'd say you need. The problem with rent control in New York is there is there isn't enough rent control if you had one blanket system it wouldn't be a problem at all longer tenancies yeah we feel that we, there should definitely be longer tenancies um, it, it's not to say that a tenant should be obliged to live somewhere forever because people's circumstances change but at the moment tenants are being blackmailed by by landlords you either pay us a 10 or 15 or 20 percent uh, rent increase or you're out and if you've got kids in school uh, that means your kids education going through upheaval every six or 12 or 18 months and it is possible to blackmail um, tenants into paying more money than they can afford. I'm David Orr and I'm Chief Executive of the National Housing Federation and we're the trade body for all of the housing associations in England. Is there a housing crisis in London? There is indeed a housing crisis in London. Um, I think despite the use of the words a lot of our politicians are still a bit in denial about the scale and nature of the crisis and the absolute urgency with which we need to respond. London is growing 
at the speed of a whole new London borough every two and a bit years. We're probably growing, London's probably growing at the rate of about somewhere between 200 and 250,000 people just every two years. So if you think typically the population of Camden or Lewisham is somewhere in excess of 200,000, that's like we need a whole new London borough of Camden between now and the middle of 2017. Uh, now, that suggests straight away that your concern is the level of housing stock. House prices are out of control in London, whether you're buying or renting. The reason for that, it's a basic supply and demand thing. The demand is much greater than the supply. We've underinvested in housing for decades, and the chickens are coming home to roost. You cannot expect a city to grow at the extent that London is growing and to have the dynamism and all the demographic change that we've had and people living longer and immigration and the biggest baby boom since the baby boom generation and not build enough new homes. And that's what we've done. We have not built enough new homes. Why not? Housing's quite a long-term issue. And I think it's one of these things that you know, politicians and others have looked at and thought, well, finding a house is basically a a private responsibility. It's up to individual households to sort this out, rather than it being a key part of the economic infrastructure of the city and of the nation. Um, But I also think that because it's quite a long-term project, the consequences of make of look if we fail to build houses now then the kids who are being born today are going to be struggling for somewhere to live in 25 years time that's way beyond the time scale of your average politician and i do think that that has an impact but that is indeed true the babies who are being born today will find it incredibly difficult to live in london unless they are from very very wealthy families unless we start building new homes And you're presumably talking not just about any old sort of home. It's got to be the kind of home that's the first step on the housing ladder. We need all kinds of different homes. Um, I mean, we've argued for a long time that we need the right homes in the right places at the right price. And we need um, large and small. We need open market sale. We also need a much bigger investment in affordable housing, social rented housing, shared ownership. Shared ownership's a great product that has worked really well for Londoners but is beginning to be too expensive in central London for the people that it's designed for. So when even shared ownership is becoming too expensive for young professional couples, you know that you have a housing market that is not functioning for the big majority of people. Is it okay to assume that there are people who would be able, uh, given sufficient time and resources, to map out where which kind of homes were needed? That those skills exist. Uh, yeah, we have we have the planning skills, uh, and and the kind of research background. The knowledge, we have the knowledge to know what kind of houses we should ideally be building and where we should be building them. The reason that we're not building them is because we've made land ludicrously expensive because of the way that that we ration it and the way that we organise the planning system. But it's primarily because we don't have the kind of driving ambition that says this is central to London's future success. So when we decided that we were going to have the Olympic Games, nothing got in the way of a really successful delivery of the Olympic Games 
on the date that we needed it. If you look around central London now at the huge amount of land that is being taken at Farringdon or Tottenham Court Road for Crossrail, that's a huge project. We made the decision that we were going to do it and now we're cracking on and doing it. We need to have that same kind of thinking about housing. We need a mindset that says London's future economic prosperity and social resilience depends on getting housing right and at the moment we're getting it wrong. It sounds as though potentially there's a problem here that housing just ain't sexy enough and whereas a, uh, an Olympics successfully delivered or a crossrail legacy project would be a feather in a politician's cap, uh, maybe is housing just not being seen in that way? It's, it's being brushed under the carpet, a combination of short-termism and, and just not being fancy enough? So it's a fascinating idea, isn't it, that... that delivering London's housing requirements is not seen as being a sexy political legacy. What better legacy could you possibly have than knowing that you were the politician who finally got to grips with the fact that hundreds of thousands of Londoners are living in squalid conditions and came up with a strategy that ended that crisis. What a fantastic legacy that would be. The problem, I think, is that too many of our politicians don't think legacy. They think short-term political advantage. And if you've got a group of people saying, nah, it's going to spoil the view if you build on that little piece of ground over there. We don't want you to do it. The short-term political considerations have been outweighing the legacy requirements, so I would love our politicians to be thinking long-term, strategically, and about their legacy. Now, what is the block there, then? Because families think long-term and strategically, and each generation worries about, for example, how it's going to look after itself in later life, how to support its kids as they take their first few steps. How is that not being harnessed, and why are we not demanding that our politicians serve those interests? Uh, well, I think we're, we're, we've not been demanding of our politicians about housing, partly because we have thought this isn't really a political issue. We, it, it's really a personal issue. But you see, looking after your children when they're toddlers and when they're going to school, of course we see that as our responsibility as parents. But we also think that the state has a role to provide nurseries and primary schools. and I mean... We've had a big argument in London recently about the huge shortage of school places. Well, you get five years' notice of the fact that we're going to need a school place for a child because there's a gap. That's the length of gap between the child being born and the child needing the school place. You get 20 years' notice of the fact that a child being born will become a young adult and will need some housing of their own. We've not understood that our political establishment has a really important role to play in ensuring that these homes can be delivered. Is it simple to prescribe some sort of cure-all? Is there a staringly obvious solution to all this? See, this is one of the things I find really fascinating. People think it's very, very difficult to come up with an answer to it. It's not. It is extremely easy. The answer is build more homes. Build lots more homes. And people say we don't have the land and we don't have the money. We do have the land. And there's loads of money out there in pension funds and big institutional investors who would like to be able to invest in housing if we could get the offer right. Reducing the cost of land is really important if we're to do that. So there are some kind of technical things that we still need to resolve. 
But this is a problem whose solution is entirely clear, simple and straightforward. We don't have enough homes, we need to build more of them, and it needs to be London's great project. Whoever is the next mayor of London should be setting out his or her stall now, saying our great project will be to ensure that London can house itself. So what are you suggesting, building on uh, Greenbelt land? I'm suggesting that we need to be more rational. We need to allow ourselves to have grown-up conversations about where we build. So there are some areas which are designated greenbelt, which have no economic value, no environmental benefit and no ecological benefit. There are pieces of scrubland, but because they were designated as greenbelt 60 years ago, we don't allow ourselves even to talk about it. That's really crazy. There are some places in really high-density central London where properties or businesses are, for whatever reason, being demolished. I'd love to see new city parks being created in exchange for building on some of the Greenbelt. We just have to understand that cities are dynamic, living, breathing places. And the Greenbelt has not been dynamic. It's been very, very fixed. That's not rational, sensible, grown-up politics or planning or decision-making. And surely we can allow ourselves to behave as though we were adults in this conversation. Also, from what you're saying, I think I'm hearing that something more nuanced and detailed in terms of how people understand the green belt, uh, not just a case of getting a big thick marker pen and drawing a line across a map, but actually looking at individual sites. And I, I think there are loads of places where we could build... We just need to allow ourselves to look at every single opportunity that comes along and says, OK, let's presume that we will build there unless there's a really strong reason not to, rather than what we've had until now, which is, let's assume that we're not going to build there unless you can come up with a really strong reason to do so. You represent housing associations. What can we learn, what can we bring to this specifically through the prism of housing associations? So housing associations are really social enterprises. They are entrepreneurial organisations which are using their commerciality as a means of creating the income they need to be able to cross-subsidise and provide for the social part of their mission, which is about ensuring that there are homes for people whose needs are not met by the market. Now, housing associations have become increasingly clever at doing that. I think, though, that there remains a significant role for government. You see, I think it's economically rational for government to provide upfront capital funding, a bit of grant funding. Because if housing associations on their own can build 20,000 homes a year in London, with a bit more government support, that might be 40,000 homes or 60,000 homes. And the economic impact of that, just the economic activity that comes from building homes, people moving in, buying the furniture that they need, the wallpaper, all of that. That's a real economic boost. But the other thing which we've become increasingly focused on is the extent to which London's economic potential is now being hampered by lack of homes. So you may have a great thriving business with real potential for growth. You might want to attract the graduates with skills who would add to your business. You might even be prepared to offer them decent starting salaries, 30, 35, 40,000 pounds a year. 
And those people say no because we can't afford to live in London. They will take their skills somewhere else. And unfortunately, they will often take their skills out of the country altogether. This is not good for London. It's not good for the economy. And we need to get our heads round it. From your research, what are people who don't have a house to live in? What are they doing? I was talking to uh, someone who had visited London for the first time recently, now staying here, saying, I couldn't believe how many houses in London don't have a living room. Because the truth is that so many houses originally built as family homes with three bedrooms and a living room are now accommodating four single people. And there is no shared living space other than perhaps a very cramped kitchen. gets worse than that because sometimes these rooms get subdivided. So you've got very small individual living spaces. And, you know, the, the things that we're reading about in the press about converted attics with no natural light, converted basements, not even converted basements with no natural light, beds in sheds, all of that, that is all there. It's, in, in a way, it's, it's not visible, so it conspires to hide the scale and extent of the problem. But really, unless we're very careful indeed, London will start to see informal settlements, slums, people living in cardboard boxes. We're not there yet, but we are really not very far away from it. I'm concerned that any house-building drive would result, yes, in X number more properties. But we hear a great deal about the particularly foreign investors coming in and uh, buying up properties they have no intention of living in. What would stop them from doing exactly the same thing with these new homes? So I'm not sure that you can stop foreign investors um, from buying property, but I think there may be things that you can do to stop them leaving those properties lying empty. We tend to assume that the way things are is the, the way that they will inevitably be. Well, it is possible to put a covenant onto a sale that the person who buys it must live in it. Or you could put a covenant onto a sale that said, if you buy this property, you must ensure it is inhabited. You could even say that after, three months after a sale, if you're not living it yourself, we will assume that it's being rented in the private rented market. We will assume that you're earning £3,000 a month from it and we'll tax you on it. That might encourage people at least to let the properties out. So I think we need to allow ourselves just to think a bit more laterally about how we kind of meet these challenges. Um, But if we were building at the scale that we're building, a bit more foreign investment wouldn't be such a big problem. It's because we're building at such low scale at the moment that housing has become an investment class commodity rather than a place where people live. We've obviously got elections of all sorts coming up. Which parties have a good deal for renters? So at present, all of the political parties are tentatively testing out what they think um, about housing and housing policy. I don't think any of them has said anything particularly bold or ambitious about housing generally, about rented housing and about social rented housing. Um, you know, the, the, the Conservative Party has uh, re-emphasised its commitment to owner-occupation, which is a 10-year strategy when we need a housing policy. Um, the Labour Party has produced a plan through Michael Lyons to produce 
200,000 homes across the economy every year from the end of the next parliament. That's helpful, but it still lacks ambition. Other parties have given big numbers, but they don't have anything substantive behind it. I would like to see a proper debate about whether, not that we should reduce rents in the private sector or really wind them down, but some means of saying there will be a limit on how fast rents can rise so that rents are pegged to the rate of inflation. Actually, people who are interested in long-term investment with inflation-linked returns might be quite attracted to that. And every time I hear someone saying to me, any rent control will mean that the buy-to-let landlords will leave the market, I think, and the problem with that is what? The house will still be there, and if they're not going to be letting them out as buy-to-let landlords, hey, they might become first-time buyer properties for exactly the kind of people who are having to rent because there are no first-time buyer properties out there. So I'm not sure what the downside is. Maybe we could finish on... Could we say a bit more about land prices? So land prices are a real problem in London. Um, I mean, there is great clamour for land. There are lots of possible uses for the land that we have available. Um, Of course, there is some privately owned land that could be made available, but there is a huge amount of publicly owned land. And that publicly owned land is almost always brought to the market only to be sold at the highest possible market price. I think we need to get smarter about that too. If um, a health trust, one of the big hospital trusts, owns land that it's not using or buildings that it's not using, they're not very interested in a capital receipt from that. What they want is revenue to support their service delivery. Well, they could lease that land to a housing association for 50 years, get a revenue stream as a result. We could then have a conversation between that hospital trust and the housing association about what was going to be built there. We could build some homes for general need that would work for the housing association and we could build something for the hospital. Perhaps a means of bringing people out of hospital who don't need care but are not yet ready to go home. We could provide that kind of building on a really thought-through partnership, using land, not charging top dollar for it, creating a revenue stream, and then providing a whole lot of different housing options. So the reason that that doesn't happen at the moment is because any person who's got public land believes from government that they have to sell it for top dollar. We have to get away from that thinking. We have to think about where the real value lies not just what the greatest possible sales price might be. David, or your shopping list for sorting this thorny situation out? We're part of a big coalition called Homes for Britain, and our shopping list is quite simple. We're saying to any candidate at the forthcoming general election who wants our vote, will you commit to end the housing crisis in a generation and publish a detailed plan for doing so within a year? This is a long-term plan. It needs to go across Parliament, it needs to go across party, it needs to be the same kind of thinking about large-scale infrastructure that characterises HS2 or Crossrail or these other big things that don't stop just because there's a change in government. In this government, in the coalition government, there have been well over 200 housing initiatives. And yet, every year for the last five years... 
We've built the lowest number of homes in peacetime since the First World War. We don't need initiatives. We need long-term, proper strategy, planning and delivery. My shopping list is is better rights for tenants, uh, which will help bring rents down a little bit. It is greater wealth taxes for people whose housing is very, very expensive. I would add bounds to the council tax and I'd also have a London-wide council tax rather than it being lower in some of the richest areas. And for London, I would have some building because London has slipped now to be the 25th largest city in the world. It's Europe's only megacity. A lot of people want to be in London. We can benefit from them, but we do need to build some apartments and also for the elderly to be able to stay in London. Some elderly people would like to be in London. You don't want it just to become a city for the rich. And for the elderly in particular, we need apartments with lifts where you're not having to go up and down stairs in your 80s and your 90s. Alex Hill. Uh, the first thing we need is uh, rent control. Until the housing market has sorted itself out, tenants need rent control so they're not ripped off anymore. Um, second thing, we want uh, security of tenure. We want tenants to be able to live in a place for as long as they like, as long as they're not breaching the terms of the tenancy agreement or the law. Um, and thirdly, we want minimum standards and decent conditions. Alex Hill, David Hill, Danny Dooling, thanks very much. Uh, thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.